What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Chris Pronger. Chris is one of the best players in NHL history. He was the second overall pick in the 1993 NHL draft. He played 20 years in total. He won a Stanley Cup in 2007, an MVP trophy in 1999, and two Olympic gold medals with Team Canada. We talk about the pressures he faced early in his career, the financial lessons he learned along the way, how he thinks about investments today, and his advice for a younger generation. I really enjoyed this conversation with Chris, and I hope that you do too. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've been wearing a Whoop for several years now, and it has made a massive difference in my life. It's the only tech product that I wear 24-7, so it's pretty cool to see people like Patrick Mahomes, Rory McIlroy, Michael Phelps, and Justin Bieber wearing one also. Whoop automatically measures your respiratory rate, oxygen level, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. Sure, it might sound complex, but Whoop interprets the data for you, so it's easy to digest and actionable. But here's the best part. Their 4.0 is officially back in stock and shipping in real time. So to celebrate that and Mother's Day coming right up, Whoop is offering 15% off and free shipping when you use code JOE, J-O-E, at checkout. So go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com, and use code JOE, J-O-E, to save 15% off and get free shipping for a limited time only. Next up is 8sleep. Eight 8sleep eight has dramatically improved my daily performance. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have before, all thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. You can add the cover to any mattress. The temperature regulation will create the optimal sleeping environment by adjusting to each side of the bed based on the personalized sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature. But the results are proven to be true. 8sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. And it's not just me who sleeps on an 8sleep. The product is so good that it's garnered the attention of CEOs, Olympians, UFC champions, and even the Mercedes F1 racing team. So go to 8sleep.com slash Joe to check out the Pod Pro cover and save $150 at checkout. 8sleep ships to the USA, Canada, and the UK. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, everyone. I'm here with Chris Pronger today. Chris, how are you? Great. Thanks. Amazing. I am pumped to talk to you. You've blown up, I feel like, on the internet over the past few months. You started writing, which I appreciate a lot, and I think other people have as well, about your experience. And I want to level set here and give a little bit of background, and I may embarrass you a little bit, so hopefully you don't mind. I don't want Yeah, I want to talk about your career, right? And you had an incredible career. You played in the NHL for 20 years. You were the number two overall pick in the 1993 NHL draft. You were named to the 100 Greatest NHL Players list. You won the MVP trophy. You won a Stanley Cup. You, I believe, have won a couple gold medals with Canada and many other accomplishments that I'm sure I'm missing. When you look back on all of that, is there one particular moment or one particular accomplishment that sticks out and, and you point to that and say, hey, that was the proudest moment? I don't know if there's one in particular, but I think, you know, as it relates to goals and dreams and and trying to attain ultimate success, I think Seeing my career start slowly, you know, high high pick with 
a lot of notoriety, a lot of expectations. Got off to a tough start to my career in Hartford. Get traded to St. Louis for a fan favorite. <laughs> Got booed my first year here in, in St. Louis for the bulk of my first year. And then, you know, kind of had a an awakening, if you will, of what type of professional athlete, what type of person do I want to be? Do I want to live up to my potential? Do I want to be the best player that I can be? And and ultimately, a lot of the adversity that I faced that first three or four years of my early part of my career really helped set up the rest of it that you just described. You know, I think everything that that we all go through in life, no matter who it is, the best parts of life usually are after some type of adversity or some type of issue that we've had to overcome. And I was no different. And, and I think that, you know, getting to, you know, win the Hart Trophy, win the Norris Trophy as the best defenseman in the league, having gone through that early stage of, of <laughs> issue and strife and, and adversity and all the things that I just talked about, ultimately getting over that hump and, and, focusing and realizing what I needed to do to be the best of my ability each and every day, not game, not week. It's every day you have to bring it. And, you know, watching the last dance and and now watching the, the Magic Johnson episodes on Apple Plus, there's a lot of similarities in just their drive and their energy and, and kind of the competition and things like that. And, you know, for me, that that's kind of the the key of it all and, and where I'm most proud is is hitting those forks in the road and, and those tough moments and then ultimately coming to a collusion. What are you willing to put into it in order to get out of it? And you have to kind of push your chips all in and, and be focused on that. You talked a little bit about adversity there during that two to three minute answer. And I'm curious, what kind of pressure came with being the number two overall pick? There, there was a lot. I, I think on a number of fronts, you know, I was sandwiched between a bunch of offensive players. You know, number one pick was was offensive. Number three, number four, number five were offensive. And so when I signed my contract, it was, I, I'm assuming the owners <laughs> thought I was going to be this offensive juggernaut on the back end. And, you know, early on, that wasn't the case. I was more about locking people down and, and shutting people down and, and not allowing them to score. And I had decent offensive numbers for the for the era and the time, but not outlandish. And I think he was a little upset thinking that I was going to be able to be the next Mario Lemieux and turn the the franchise completely around. And, you know, that's just not the way that I played. And so I, there was a few boo boo birds in Hartford too, that I kind of blacked out and I only remember the St. Louis ones. It was, uh, you know, expectations were very, very high. And as a young 18, 19 year old, I probably didn't handle it very well. Yeah, that's a good point because I think people often forget that, especially for someone like you who is going pro essentially at 18 or 19 years old at this point, it's a whole different world. Maybe talk a little bit about that transition and things that maybe came naturally to you and then things that you struggled with looking back on. An athlete's refuge is the arena, the the ballpark, the the field, whatever their sport is. And, and so being at the rink was never an issue. That was, I'd spend most of my time at the rink. When you leave the rink, you know, guys are going to their wives or girlfriends or their houses and you're kind of 18, 19 years old or there's like Sega Genesis that's not connected. There was no internet yet. <laughs> so I'm not able to go back and play with my buddies back home and, and what have you. So, you know, you got a lot of idle time. You got a lot of 
time to yourself where, you know, you're trying to fill your day and, and kind of kill time, so to speak, in order to get to the rink the next day. So what were you doing then? Were you were you literally playing Sega or were you doing something else? I was living with a family. So I'd spend some time with the, with the family and they had a young daughter who was five or six years younger than I was. So, you know, we'd hang out, watch movies and talk to the family at dinner and, and things like that. It, it was a, you know, outside of that interaction with the family, it was pretty lonely and it wasn't, you know, there was a lot of pressure. I was more focused on playing and Hartford being Hartford. It wasn't exactly the uh, hockey hotbed or the, uh, the greatest city to live in coming into your pro career, but I was in the NHL and I was just excited to be there. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed that you've been doing recently is sharing some of these experiences on both the financial and the business side, the investing side, the entrepreneurship side, and really giving people a deep dive and and an inside look at kind of what it's like to be a professional athlete from a different perspective. I guess first, like what made you start doing this? Why are you sharing this information now and in the format that you're doing it? I got on Twitter New Year's. And I uh, was going to post, I posted a bunch of stuff on, on the winter classic with Minnesota and St. Louis and was going to do some stuff. And, and I got COVID <laughs> and didn't go. So then I, I was down in Austin, you know, month, month and a half ago and, and met with a friend of mine from St. Louis here, Sam Parr, who had recently sold a company and we were just talking and he was asking me about his money and what I do with my money. And. And, you know, just talked to, I started talking about all the mistakes I made, you know, he's still fairly young and he was like, man, you should do a thread on that. That'd be great. People would love to, you know, hear more about that. And I'm like, well, okay. We started kind of talking a little bit and walked through it, ultimately coming up with that first one and and it went viral and people were, I, I guess most people don't really pay attention to that side of it. They think everybody makes 10, 15, $20 million and they forget there's somebody making 700 but has to live near the rink. And, you know, I, there was a lot of people asking, well, the guy doesn't have to spend 5,000 a month. Like, well, actually he does because he needs to live near the, near the rink. He's not going to drive an hour and a half to get to the practice. So there was a lot of, I think, eye-opening moments in, in some of the, some of the threads and a lot on the investing side, as you mentioned. And, and so I had a lot of athletes, a lot of investment people and, and, you know, educators reach out it has been something that's bothered me for a long time. Just all of the mistakes that I described in my thread, I made all the same mistakes, even though it's, you know, 18, 19, 20, you know, 22, whatever. I don't know anybody who's starting their professional sports career or, you know, they're becoming a lawyer, a doctor, whatever. They're not ever thinking about the end. They're always focused on the beginning and how do they get better and how do they hone their craft, et cetera. And at no point are they thinking, okay, well, when I'm done, I need to have X, I need to do this or that. In the beginning, that never seems to be the logical step. But because a sports career is so short, the average being four years, it's just not, you can't play 20 years. Not every player can play 20 years. And so for for me, it just became a rallying cry, so to speak, of just trying, not necessarily speaking to the, the random fan, but more of the athletes and and advisors and people like that that were paying attention, that were listening and reading it, and just trying to open up their eyes to focusing on yourself. Don't worry about keeping up with the Joneses. Not everybody can be LeBron or KD and fly around on a private jet. You got to understand your where you are at personally and and try not to live through somebody else's eyes. 
Do you think the biggest mistake is that people think that they're going to play much longer than they end up playing, right? You just mentioned that the average career is four years. Do you think that people assume that this money is going to continue to for much longer and that's why they're more wasteful at the beginning? Or is it something else that they're missing? I, I think it's a couple things. I, I think number one, yes. I think they think they're never going to be the guy that gets hurt. They're never going to be the guy that gets cut. They're going to continue on this trend of getting better and better and et cetera. And, and I do think early on, guys, you know, when I turn pro, I want to buy my parents a house. I want to buy, I want to buy a house. I want to buy a cabin. I want to get a cottage. I want to get a car. I want to get a fast car. I want to get, I want to have two cars. I want, you know, and it just, they make these packs with themselves. It's almost like that when they turn pro or when they sign their first contract, they're going to buy XYZ. And ultimately that happens and they buy XYZ <laughs> and you know, it, it can go faster than people think. It, it's, you know, an, an average car, just if you were to go to a, a dealership, an average car is 50 grand. It's not 1993 where I bought a souped up Explorer and I spent 30 grand and it was like awesome. <laughs> Nowadays, you buy that same car and it's 70 grand. Yeah. And, and I think also people often forget that as you get more income, the things you want to buy don't decrease, right? Your burn rate actually increases pretty dramatically, very fast. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that, right, is like, sure, you have a car, maybe your car's $40,000. The next car you buy is going to be $60,000 because you're making more money. You want something nicer. You're going to upgrade your house. You're going to be spending more money on dinner, entertainment, and so forth. And when people just think about their personal burn rate, athletes aside, I've seen regular individuals, people in business, entrepreneurs do this where they just start making more money month over month or year over year, and their expenses double or triple or quadruple very fast because they're, they're accustomed to this lifestyle where they need more things. And you fall in this trap where you're not necessarily benefiting from the additional cash flow to the degree that you might think you are because your personal burn rate has increased so much. And I feel like with professional sports, whether it's the NHL, the NFL, MLB, or anything else, that's under a magnifying glass, right? Because you're around people who are making millions of dollars and they're doing these things and maybe they make more money than you or even less than you, but ultimately it becomes a game of keeping up with the Joneses and you want to have these nice things and it only increases. So I think it's interesting that you bring up that point because even with people like yourself talking about it and writing about it and telling other people about it, it's still a problem that's pretty widespread across professional athletics today. Do you think that this has changed from when you were playing or do you think that we still have a lot of work to do? Just talk to me about kind of how you see it today. Yeah, no, I would say from the time I changed, players were pretty, they weren't making as much money in, in the NHL. You know, the average salary was 300000 So, you know, it's it's kind of grown rapidly over the, you know, the last 25 years. And for context, I think you wrote in one of your threads, you guys were that the NHL was flying commercial at that point, right? So it's, yeah. it's completely yeah. transformed now from a monetary standpoint with the league. You guys are doing charter planes and people are getting paid millions of dollars and, and the median salary is obviously higher. So just from like the aspect of when you played versus today, players are already in a better financial position. Now it's just about figuring out how to control some of that money and actually build for their future. Yeah. And I think, I think you hit the nail on the head with the burn rate. The more money you make, the more money you're going to spend. Just that's just out of habit, and and you want something nicer. I'm making more money. I can get a nicer car. I can get a nicer house, as as you said. And they're not able to save as much, yet that burn rate's getting higher. And oh, by the way, as soon as they're done, they have zero coming in, and they have to keep up that burn rate. 
and that's where that's where athletes and and get into trouble is they don't start to decelerate their spending before they retire to prepare for not having an income that's as large as the one that they're making when they're professional athletes and you know that was something as I started to learn as I got smarter the older I got when I was still playing we started to really focus on decelerating our our spending to get to a level that was sufficient that my money my investments were going to be able to if we wanted to be able to live off it and and not have to dig into principle and not have to you know start doing that that dance so you know i i think it's it's really just a matter of setting yourself up for success and being at a certain level i don't know too many people that are willing to once they retire go down <laughs> and live in a smaller house live in a different area you know drive a 10 year old used car versus a brand new car most people their egos get in the way and they're just unwilling to do that and so you need to start doing that when you're still playing and start setting yourself up for retirement setting yourself up for success once you do ultimately retire or are forced to retire because either a you get hurt or b nobody wants you anymore and so not everybody's John Elway sailing off in the sunset winning back-to-back Super Bowls. Yeah, it reminds me of two pieces of advice that I got from individuals and, and certainly my dad when I graduated college and started working, right? And they're very simple, but very helpful and impactful, I think at least, which were spend less than you make, right? And save money and invest it. Very simple, very hard to do for some people. But I think that's probably number one. And then number two, which is probably a little more complex for people to think about, but certainly has been helpful was just advice around keeping your personal burn rate as low as possible early on in your career, right? So stay nimble, especially as an entrepreneur and and someone who does a business like I do today, was just the idea of spending as little amount of cash as you personally can in the beginning. Because not only is it helpful to invest and let compounding work for yourself and, and eventually you build up this really big nest egg because you're starting from such a young age and just time in the market is more important than timing the market. But ultimately, you get yourself in a nice routine and a nice rhythm of not requiring a lot of these things. Yeah. And I think that's been extremely helpful. And it's probably something that a lot of athletes could benefit from. But again, it's difficult because there's this double-edged sword of like, you're young, you're making a lot of money. It's supposed to be the best and most entertaining portion of your life. And yeah. you don't think it's going to end. So it's almost this mental game of trying to figure out how you can get people to realize this without telling them no too many times, right? Because I think- yeah. Talking to professional athletes on a, on a semi-regular basis, one of the things I always hear is they resent people that tell them no all the time, right? <laughs> mo, mo, it's true. Most athletes are used to getting things that they want, right? Especially yeah. the ones that are making millions of dollars a year. And that's not like, oh, I'm a spoiled brat type thing. That's like a, hey, I'm really good at what I do. And I've always been able to accomplish what I want to accomplish. And people yeah. have always told me yes, because they want to come along for the ride. And they start to resent people that say no. And ultimately, it puts whether it's their financial advisor or their lawyer or their manager or someone like that in a really difficult position because they're almost looked down upon and looked as the bad person. But I think it's important. I'm sure you've had experience with this where like you need those type of people in your life. No, you need to have the hard conversations. You need somebody that's going to tell you no once in a while or say, you know what, think about it and walk through it. You know, when you're talking about the advice your dad gave you, my dad was an accountant. He kept telling me, you know, I buy a car for 30,000. He's like, you know, that's that's 60,000. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's 30. He's like, no, it's 60. And he's like, pre-tax, pre-tax, man, you're going to be losing half that. And so I started thinking about everything. And, and one of the things, you know, as I've gone through this process of, of digging a little bit deeper and, and, and looking, 
renting a apartment or a house or what have you would be the smartest thing an athlete could do their first five or 10 years. Why do you think that? It used to be, you need to buy a home because we need to know you're invested in the community and invested with the team and on and on and on. Nowadays, it doesn't matter. Players are all over the place anyways. You're training all over the place. You don't, with all these salary caps and everything that, that's been instituted now in, in the bulk of the, the pro sports, it doesn't matter. You know, buying a home and, and being, you're going to be philanthropic. You're going to do what you want with respect to charitable endeavors and things like that. Renting a home or renting an apartment, what does it matter? And to your point, the amount of money you're going to save from not having to invest in that home and somebody's going to tell you about, you know, building equity and on and on and on. Well, how about you build an investment portfolio instead? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's something that I've really thought about. Yeah, I think that's generally pretty good advice, especially because to your point, you could get traded, right? You could get hurt. Your contract could end. Anything could happen, really, right? These things may be outliers, but ultimately they're on the table and you have to think about them when making these decisions. One of the things I want to talk about, though, is how you think about investments, and really in the frame of how you used to think about them as a pro athlete and how you think about them today. Because one of the things that stuck out to me in your thread, and it's something that I think is a common theme among athletes, is that they feel they're treated differently than maybe other people when it comes to investments, right? And I think you wrote that some people would call you up and say, hey, we need $500,000 and the deal's got to close in three days. Like wire us the money today. Are you in or out? And they place this ultimatum on you with a time perspective of, hey, you got to make this decision today. And really for people who, who do not understand what's going on, they're just trying to force your hand, right? And say, hey, go, come in this deal really quickly and limit the amount of time that you have to think about it. So then you feel pressure to be included. Talk to me a little bit about how your process for looking at deals and investing in them specifically has changed throughout the years. I was always fairly involved in, in the investment analysis and decision, even when I was playing. But you got, you got to have good people around you and good people you trust that can kind of cut through the legal mumbo jumbo and kind of explain it to you on a more kid-friendly environment and then break down the nuts and bolts and kind of give it to you as simple as possible. And then, you know, I think from then versus now, a lot of what I was investing for was wealth preservation, just trying to keep what I had. I reached for a couple home runs stupidly, made my, my share of mistakes. Typically, if you're just trying to hit a home run, you're going to hit a zero. <laughs> and if you're hitting a single or a double, yeah, you might hit a triple or a home run. You never know. That's really my basis now is just hitting a single and a double and, and just letting your money go to work and rolling it over year after year after year. It doesn't get any simpler than that. It, and it doesn't have to be harder than that. You know, I think we see all these crazy financial terms and all these deals get thrown around on TV and we're like, oh, I want to I want to invest in that. Or I think I could be a VC guy or, you know, you see so-and-so and rapper or whoever invested in, you know, some crazy drink or some Internet stock or whatever. And you're like, oh, my God, this guy made 50x. Well, yeah, but how many misses did he get? You don't hear those stories. You don't know how much money they invested in it. So I'm a lot more guarded if I can be. <laughs> I was already guarded, you know, as I said, made a few mistakes myself, but once you make those mistakes and you realize the money's out the door and it's gone, you tighten your systems up and your processes up pretty good so that you can really get a better understanding. And, and then now when I look at investments, if it doesn't meet the four criteria, I don't even bother. What are the four criteria? Character, leverage. Does it fit the allocation model I'm currently in or, you know, is it part of the thesis? 
And, and then really the fourth one is based on trends in the marketplace and not following the herd. You know, really just looking at taking emotion out of the, out of the, the investment decision and looking at it and say, is this a good deal? Why is it a good deal? Don't worry about what the market's doing. Don't worry about interest rates and, you know, the market going down 5,000 points or whatever could happen and just focus on, is it a good deal? Stress test it and then say, okay, it meets the other ones. This is the last one. All right. It fits. And (laughs) surprisingly enough, very few fit that mold. (laughs) I have a unpopular opinion or or maybe even a hot take on this, and I'm curious about your opinion. So let me tell you first, and then I want to gauge your reaction and see if you agree or disagree or what your thoughts are in general. But I think there's two types of professional athletes, broadly speaking, kind of overgeneralized sense. There's a a top tier, right, who are the Kevin Durant's of the world, the LeBron James's of the world, the Tiger Woods, the Patrick Mahomes, right? That top level where you're a megastar, you're a superstar, Lewis Hamilton, right? Like these these top tier celebrities, Serena Williams, these people that are superstars, they are celebrities, they they are movie star quality. And they will get deals because of who they are, right? If you think about Kevin Durant, I talk about this often, but the smartest thing he ever did in his career was going out to Golden State because they got in bed with a bunch of the venture capitalists out there and they got brought all these incredible deals and they wanted him in there because of his name, because of the marketing, because of the attention that it brought the company he invested in, right? So he wasn't going out and sourcing all these deals. He wasn't taking these big shots. He was partnering up with the A16Zs of the world, the Sequoias of the world, right? And basically going along and investing alongside them which drastically reduced the amount of zeros that he brought in and greatly improved the amount of the winners he brought in, right? So I think that's tier one where you say, hey, look, it makes a lot of sense for them to do this. But then you move to tier two. And my thought process on tier two differs from some people, I believe. And I actually don't think most tier two athletes should be doing any venture investing at all, or maybe a little bit of venture investing. And the reason for that is quite simple, actually. If you think about the S&P 500, say it returns 8% on average over the last few decades. For a venture investment, you basically have to be getting three times that, right? So 20 to 25% return on your money for it to be worth it. One, because there's a, a lack of liquidity. So in most of these funds, actually, you may not get your money back or see liquidity for eight years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years in some instances, right? Until you, you get access to that money again through an IPO, through an acquisition or something like that. So lack of liquidity, you basically have to double whatever the S&P is in my mind. Then on top of that, you have to think about the risk reward, right? So venture investing, it's a rule of power laws where basically everyone's shooting for a home run. They're shooting for the Airbnb, the Uber, the Coinbase, and those type of companies. And there's a bunch of ones that go to zero underneath that because the business model fails. It doesn't catch on. It's just not a massive market, et cetera. There's a number of reasons. You essentially have to add another 8% or another 10%. And now you're looking at something that's 25 to 30% return which is extremely hard to do, not only that, but then you don't have access to that money for decade plus. In my mind, you're much better off just compounding this capital year over year in traditional financial markets where you've had the ability to see how this works for decades now, right? You take way less risk, you have access to the money if you need it, and you're guaranteed essentially a pretty decent return relative to inflation historically. So maybe over the last couple of years, that hasn't worked out necessarily that well. But when you think about inflation, yeah, sure, they're saying it's 8%, but we also saw a market that went up 20%, real estate went up 25%, 40%, right? So like every financial asset has blown up. And as long as you owned assets in general, whether it was stocks, bonds, equities, crypto, whatever it was, you benefited greatly. So like that second tier in my mind, it's much more important to just stress the idea of getting invested 
And then if they want to do index funds, if they want to do the S&P, if they want to buy individual stocks, like sure, go ahead. But ultimately, you're going to be much better off versus trying to go chase all of those winners in the venture world because you'll have way less zeros, you'll have access to your money, and you're not constantly trying to hit home runs. Does that make sense to you? Do you agree with that? Do you not agree with that? No, it does. 100% I do. Where that second tier starts, I don't know. I mean, once you get to a certain level of net worth, yeah, maybe it makes sense to have a small tranche of it. But for the bulk of professional athletes, I think it needs to be as simple as possible. The stock market, real estate, bonds, whatever your, you know, whatever your allocation is, and that's it. Like it doesn't need to be anything more than that. If you do that, you're going to be making eight to ten percent a year. That's all you need to make. As it compounds, yeah. it's just going to, you know, it's a rule of averages. And and so again, and it goes back to people wanting to live like those people, so they think. I can hit a home run like that. Well, no, you can't. It's not that simple. Those guys were invited in because of the access that they have, because of where they played or because of who they knew. That's it. Yeah. I, I think part of it too is everyone wants to to look sexy, right? And feel sexy where their name is in the news. They're talking about these investments. Like everyone knows how much LeBron made on Blaze Pizza. Everyone knows how much he made on Beats. Everyone knows that he's a co-owner of Fenway Sports Group. Everyone knows any of these big name deals. They know because the stuff's public, right? It's known how much these guys are making and how much they're up. And that's an attraction for a lot of people. But the reality is it's just not attainable for a lot of those people also. But I'm also curious, like since you've been writing, have any athletes reached out to you? You don't have to name names, obviously, but like, are people interested in this stuff that are currently playing the sport? Or is this just something where a lot of people are looking back on and saying, hey, I really wish I knew that? Yeah, I, I think it's both. There's former athletes and, and some financial advisors that you know are trying to educate current players and former players still at this point. You know, there's been a few, a few athletes follow me and, and are kind of paying attention to some of the conversation. Like anything else, it's start small and just kind of let it let it progress and let it grow on its own, you know, its own free will. And, you know, if you're talking about things that resonate with people and make sense and, and, and hit home and, and give that emotional hammer home of this, this is me, this sounds just like me, you know, because I had the same thing when, when, you know, I was in their shoes when I was playing, I just, you're always the kid that it's never going to happen to you. <laughs> I'm never going to get hurt. Luckily for me, I broke my arm and tore my ACL in back-to-back -back years, and and I thought my career was over. I couldn't move my wrists very well, so I thought I was going to have to retire. And I was 28, I think, at the time. So I was kind of glide-pathing right away, like, okay, I might have to retire. And so that kind of really got my head thinking about it. I played another 10 years, but it was, uh, it was a wake-up moment for me that I had played 10, sat out that year, and I was really trying to come to grips with, okay, is this really going to be the end? And what am I going to do at this point if I do have to retire? So not every athlete has that capability of seeing the light and then getting back in and, and, and playing at a high level again. So it, it, it was eye opening for me, but I think for, for most athletes and, and, you know, current and former being simple and, and having the ability to look at a sheet of paper at your net worth or whatever you've got invested in, at least being able to understand what it is you're invested in. You start going into some of this VC stuff, you don't even know what you're doing. Somebody's doing it for you. You don't know what the technology is. You don't know what this is. And you invest in 50 to 100 of these things, and maybe one's a home run, and two are break even, and the rest are zero. So, I mean, it's a law of averages, but you're lucky if you get that big home run that covers it all and then some. 
and gives you the 10 or 20x that you're looking for, as you said, the risk reward profile certainly doesn't fit what what athletes need. How did you figure out the transition from playing to what you're doing today? Was that difficult to figure out what you wanted to do? Or just talk me through kind of that transition and, and figuring out what you wanted to do as your next step after playing. I, I was always interested in business, you know, reading books and, and kind of paying attention to some of that stuff and asking questions of my advisor and, you know, looking at things. Well, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? You know, what are we buying? Why we do that? Why research something on my own? Well, what about this? Why wouldn't we buy this? Just if it was a product that I was interested in or a company that I saw, I was like, hey, that's cool, whatever they do. So I was always interested in asking questions. I also was fortunate enough to have a glide path where when I got hurt, I had five years left on my contract and was able to get paid out and kind of figure it out while I got healthy and worked on my eye, worked on my concussion and and really tried to map out what 2.0 or 3.0 was going to look like. Started working at the league office in the Department of Player Safety, left there after three years and worked with the Florida Panthers for three years as a senior advisor to the GM, and then started working with my wife with, with our travel company. And when you're able to kind of see these different jobs and, and learn what you like and don't like, and I didn't like having a boss. <laughs> I didn't like being told what to do anymore. I was, uh, you know, I've been doing, being told where to go and what to do for 30 plus years. And Ultimately, you're like, I want to run my own business and be my own boss and do my own thing. And we had the wherewithal to do that and start the business and kind of grow small. COVID kind of gave us a little, <laughs> little how's she going? And then, uh, you know, now we're doing great again. So it's, uh, it's, it's been interesting, the entrepreneurial path and, 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 uh, and understanding and learning about business and, and how it works. It, it's opened a lot of eyes uh, for me, and, and, and obviously allowed me the opportunity to meet a lot of cool people and, and people that have been able to teach me a lot too. Yeah, it's the reason why I love doing this podcast, man, is I get to talk to people like you who I may not talk to otherwise, right? And it gives me the ability to have a nice conversation and, and learn more. So I totally agree with that. You said you mentioned, you mentioned that you work with your wife. I don't know if you know this, but I work with my fiance. We own and operate our business together on the content stuff, but also a lot of the investing stuff. And she is not listening to me, but I will say that she is tremendously helpful. <laughs> Do you have any advice or feedback or, or thoughts on how that relationship works? Yeah, I think everybody has kind of, I was always a leader when I played. I was always a captain, assistant captain, whatever. Typically, I take charge. I'm the take charge guy. She's the visionary, the, the one that kind of dreams up, you know, what about this? What about that? And I'm kind of the one that implements, okay, well, how, do we, how are we going to do it? get into the nuts and bolts and try to figure that out. You know, I, I think you have to, you have to kind of separate family from business, even though they kind of commingle, you got to be able to turn it off at some point. And it's hard because I'm a all in kind of guy <laughs> when I'm doing something, I'm all in and I'm invested fully in, in whatever it is I'm doing. And for me with this business, I'm just constantly researching and talking to people. And that's one of the things I like about the job is that, while I was playing and when I was a kid, I was an introvert and you know pretty quiet and kind of you know reserved and you know always looked a little standoffish with people. And now in this business, in the travel business, I need to be an extrovert and talk to people and be more outgoing. And it's kind of gotten me out of my comfort zone and allowed me to be myself and get to talk to people and, and learn more about people. And you know, again, talk to interesting people that I'm able to to learn from and, and pick out little nuts and bolts that I can 
you know, add into my business repertoire and my entrepreneurship. And, and, you know, I did the same thing when I played, I'd play against guys or watching guys in, in preparation to play them. You're also seeing other things that whether it's other defensemen or other forwards are doing, you're able to add to your game and, and really pick out things. And, and I'm the same way in business, always trying to learn whether it's reading books or, you know, listening to podcasts, talking to people, whatever it is. And, always just trying to get better. There's a reason why so many, not only professional athletes, but college athletes or even high school athletes succeed in business, right? Because a lot of the same qualities carry over from someone like yourself who probably had a very structured life, I'd imagine for two decades, really, <laughs> where you're doing a lot of the similar things. You're going to practice at the same time. You're playing in games. You're taking care of your body. You're making sure that you're doing things the right way. And I'm a firm believer a lot of that carries over. And I'm sure you've seen that in, in everything that you're doing today. To your point, whenever I talk to businesses, whenever I talk to people that are, you know, whether it's CEOs or HR or what have you, the people that they look for are, are typically athletes of any form, whether it's high school, college, pro, they understand teamwork, they understand leadership, they understand hard work and, and work ethic and how to get along and how to build something, whether it's a, a team or a core unit or, or a business or a product, whatever it is, they understand how all that is intertwined and and you know i think from a from a leadership side i think if you look at you know the top leaders in, in companies typically at some point they played a sport of, of some sort whatever that is and and you know you learn so many valuable lessons and lifelong lessons playing sports from a social aspect to a, a work ethic aspect to a leadership aspect and so anybody that doesn't have their kids playing some type of sport I, you know it just whether it's ping pong, whatever, it doesn't matter. As long as they're doing something to, to drive competition, drive social interaction and teamwork and, and things of that nature. You listen to Tiger Woods, he was just solely focused on himself in golf. You know, tennis is similar. There's very few sports that are just solo acts like that, where you have to be so insulated and learn inner drive and things like that, that he was so good at. It's very difficult too. Like if you, if you look at Naomi Osaka, I think she's probably a good example of yeah. the problems and the, the struggles that she's had over the last few years because of that inability to handle it from a solo perspective, yeah. right? She talks about it all the time and it's not me giving her a hard time. Literally, she says that it's very, very, very difficult for her to be out there on an island by herself and deal with that pressure. Yeah. And the team sports have that camaraderie where it's it's much different, right? There's an ability for you to lean on your teammates, for you to be a leader, for you to pull others up, for you to act in the best interest of, of a collective group. And I think individual sports, to your point with Tiger and, and others, whether it's tennis or, or golf or something else, it's really difficult. It's really hard. And I don't think those athletes get enough credit for the mental side of it because the mental side is, is difficult. When you look at golf, it's them against the golf course but it's them against all the other players too. And it's, so there's two competing sides of it. And on any given day, the course might beat them up, but so might their competitors too. And the pressure that they're under is so much different in a single sport like that versus a team sport. You might be having an off day and you can rely on your partner. You can rely on your teammate. You can rely on your goalie, you know, what have you. In those sports, you do not get any, <laughs> any type of, time to relax or do anything. It's got to be incredibly on the mental health side, the, the mind game side, it's got to be incredibly hard. Yeah. I think that we're seeing that. And there's been a huge shift now where 
I think most people are realizing now that mental health is is a much bigger portion of kind of sports in general, especially for professional athletes than, than yeah. we've treated it in the past. And I think the world's best athletes and the ones that are competing at the highest level and the ones that are succeeding at the highest level are certainly paying much more attention to that than, than previous generations. And I think that's a good thing, but yeah. we'll see how that trend develops over time. But my guess is it's probably going to continue moving forward. Chris, this is awesome, man. I feel like I could talk to you for a, for an hour more, but where can I send people to follow you on the internet, to find you on the internet and, and learn more about what you're doing, what you're writing about and what you're doing for travel? Yeah. Instagram at the Chris Pronger, Twitter at Chris Pronger. And then our company is at Well Inspired Travels on Instagram. And then the internet, just www.wellinspiredtravels.com. That's it. <laughs> you know that you're a good writer because I just checked it. And you started tweeting, as you said, in January of 2022, literally a few months ago. Yeah. And you have 130,000 followers on Twitter, which proves that your content has resonated with a lot of people because you don't just get that many followers for no reason. So I highly recommend people checking it out. I know I've spoken to a lot of other people who have even mentioned your content and said how much they've enjoyed it. Pro athletes, non-pro athletes, fans, et cetera. So it's, it's for a wide range audience. And I think that people will find a lot of value in it because you have firsthand experience and you're someone who has literally lived this life before. So my recommendation is just keep sharing it, man. You're doing an incredible job. I'm a big fan. And we'll have to do this again soon whenever you write your next deep dive on a subject that everyone's <laughs> interested in. And I'll, I'll have we'll, to keep We'll go down a rabbit hole somewhere. Exactly. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. But this was awesome, man. Thanks so much for doing it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Palm Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.